20 years ago in uh, 2001, uh, the summer right before uh, 9-11, a close friend of mine and I had the opportunity for about six weeks to travel through uh, a number of, of countries in, in Western uh, Europe, and it was a wonderful time for those six weeks, uh, hiking and history and sightseeing. Um, but our first stop was in London, and we were going to be there for three days and over the weekend, which meant the Lord's Day. And having read and admired the late pastor of All Souls Church in London, John Stott, uh, my friend and I made our way over to All Souls Church on Saturday to see who would be preaching uh, the following day. Outside All Souls Church is a glass-encased board that communicates uh, who the preacher is going to be in the upcoming weeks. And there were about 10 or 12 different dates. Uh, and John Stott was mentioned only uh, next to one of those dates, but it was the following day. And uh, so it was a tremendous blessing. I remember it very well, uh, worshiping with the, the congregation there, the members at All Souls Church, and being able to meet uh, John Stott for the first and only time after the service. Uh, but I mention it because of what he preached on, which was kind of icing on the cake. And he was preaching on the theme of uh, the marks of the living church. And that's important and relevant for us this morning as we begin uh, Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica. As we look into the opening words, uh, we're going to see not an exhaustive list of the marks of the church, but we're going to see a church that is demonstrating, to be sure, uh, marks, characteristics of a true church, of a true uh, Christian. And so... Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, would encourage you to turn there, we'll read verses 1 through 10. Listen now to God's word. Paul, Silvanus, that is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned from how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Opening words to First Thessalonians as we examine. These words, this letter, or, or really any New Testament letter, one of the things we're doing is considering uh, history, uh, ancient history. The Bible's full of it. 
And we're not only considering history, but really a particular conversation, if you will, that's taking place in history. Uh, this is a particular letter to a specific uh, church from a particular pastor and apostle, the Apostle Paul, uh, to a, a particular city uh, in, in the world. And that context matters. Uh, this is the early New Testament church in its infancy. And it raises the question, if you could return, if we could return to the life and practice of the early church, would you want to do so? Right. Is the early church uh, the model? Right. Besides having to give up some of our creature comforts of the 21st century, is that we, what we would want to do? Well, it's a challenging question because on the one hand, we see the early church as a positive model, a positive paradigm for the church today. Many people might point to Acts chapter 2, which we heard read earlier. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They, all had, they had all things in common. They were praising God. So there's expression of praise and prayer and fellowship, communion and preaching, sitting under the apostolic teaching. On the other hand, we know it was not all well or rosy in the early church. There were some congregations who were at times serving as a negative example. Paul expresses tremendous concern in the opening words of his letter to the churches in Galatia, where they are borderline abandoning the very gospel that he had preached to them. Or to the church in Corinth, who felt at times uh, that the grace of God was simply license uh, to live as they pleased and to sin, flagrantly immoral. But what about the church in Thessalonica here? Well, the character of this congregation is seen quite clearly in the opening verses. And they proved to be a people with sincere godliness. They clearly possess marks of a true church and of true believers. And while we will consider some of those marks, one of them that helps set up the context behind the founding of this particular church is what we read in verse 6. Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Right? So the sincerity of their faith was partly evidenced by the way that they came to saving faith. It's in the midst of opposition and affliction. Now, what affliction is Paul referring to here? Well, we learn about how this church was founded in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Only a handful of verses give us the background to what occurred in Thessalonica. After facing persecution and imprisonment in Philippi, the city of Philippi, just in the previous chapter, Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 16, Paul, Timothy, and Silas travel a few days' journey to Thessalonica, an important city, we're told, uh, perhaps about 100,000 people. It was the capital of, of the Roman province of Macedonia. And as was his practice, Paul entered the synagogue in that city and he began to teach. And we're told in Acts 17, he reasoned from the scriptures, teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed the Christ, that he had been crucified, that he had been risen. And we're told some Jews and Greeks came to faith. 
But over the course of those weeks, or perhaps a bit longer ministry uh, in the city, Jewish leaders likely became jealous. They're perhaps feeling uh, threatened in their own ministry. And so what do they do? They stir up a mob in the city led by wicked men, and they essentially drive Paul and his companions out of the city. Well, as weeks pass, out of concern for the believers, Paul then sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to establish them, to exhort them, and to report concerning them. And this is what we read in the next chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, we desired to see you face to face. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy, our brother in the gospel, to establish you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Well, Timothy then returns to Paul, who we now know was in Corinth. He was there for a year and a half. And Timothy reports the encouraging news about this church and these believers, as well as some of the questions and concerns that they had, which Paul takes up in these letters, and which we will consider in the weeks to come. So this then becomes the, the impetus and source of what Paul writes in First and Second Thessalonians. Notice what Paul here, right out of the gate, expresses thanks for in his prayers for these believers. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in Christ. Now, it seems to me what's significant about the content of Paul's prayers for these believers is also what is absent from them. Or at least he doesn't mention them. He does not mention to them that he's praying for their safety. Isn't that a little bit startling? or for their physical health, or for their protection. It does not seem to be a priority, at least in the letter that he writes to them. Remember, the environment in which these believers came to faith was marked by affliction. In verse 6, you received the word in much affliction. If you turn to chapter 2, verse 14, he says... For you, brothers, suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they in Judea did from the Jews. Now, this is not to suggest Paul wasn't concerned about their physical well-being. But it, it's not at the forefront. Of course, it's ironic that the opening verses of this book are verses you'll find printed on uh, Christian Get Well cards. I've used them. Uh, these words are Philippians 1.3, we give thanks, always mentioning you in our prayers, and we'll use that, uh, th those lines to communicate a prayer and hope for uh, wellness physically. But it's telling, I think, to see the mindset that Paul and the early church had about the faith. His first concern is not their physical well-being. Perhaps Paul knew the effectiveness of their ministry and the vitality of their faith did not rest on how safe they were, but upon something else. And he mentions that something else. Right in the opening words and verses here, it comes in a cluster of three. We give thanks for your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness 
of hope in Christ. That, that triad of faith, hope, and love, Paul uses in a number of places, or at least a few places in his letters. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we always thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ, the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up in heaven. Or 1 Corinthians 13, so now faith, hope, and love uh, remain. But unique here is how Paul describes these virtues. We can take each of them in turn. We give thanks for your work of faith. Perhaps we would be more comfortable if Paul had said, uh, we give thanks for God's gift of faith. The the, uh, faith is a gift from God, to be sure. But what does Paul mean by work of faith? What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 tells us what faith is. Uh, Faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for, the author says there of Hebrews. That word assurance or substance means reality. In other words, faith uh, makes real the things for which we hope. Faith brings the reality of forgiveness to bear on a person's life. Faith brings the reality of the gospel and its transforming power into our world and our life. That's what faith does. It takes hold of that and makes it real. He's not saying that faith is the result of work. It's really the cause of work. So faith is not something dead. It is alive. And he's recognizing this is evidenced in your life. But it's not only a working faith that Paul recognizes, but then he says a labor of love. A working faith and a laboring love. Very similar words, work and labor. They're actually two different uh, Greek words uh, in the original. And the word for labor there stresses intense work or toil, even painful exertion. And that is required at times in relationship with others. That's that's what Paul is is communicating here. Relationally, a labor of love. Anyone who is married knows that love needs not only a sincerity, not only a gentleness, but at times it needs a kind of grit to it, a perseverance, a strength. Because relationships get strained, either caused by ourselves or circumstances. And so there needs to be a labor uh, of love. Paul picks this up later in the letter. He introduces it here, but he picks it up later in chapter 4. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. That we need that labor of love uh, among our Christian uh, relationships, whether it's in our immediate family or extended family and the, the body of Christ here, uh, laboring after love. I love Dan Allender's definition of love. He says, bold love is courageously setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into the world of others with their well-being in view, willing to risk further pains in our own souls 
in order to be an, an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. So a work of faith, labor of love, and then a steadfastness of hope. We could translate those words endurance inspired by hope. It is that willingness to endure through trials, not with a wishful thinking about what is to come. It's hope. It's confident expectation. And they were not only enduring trials, but Paul was reminding them of the larger story of God's uh, redemptive history. Notice he points them in the last verse of, of this first chapter to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is going to be a theme that runs through almost every chapter of both of these letters. So he's pointing them to the fact that that life is not merely defined by your birth and physical death, but he's pointing them to the great hope we have in the return of Jesus Christ at the consummation of history. We can have hope. We are people who have been delivered. He says, as we wait, in verse 10, for his Son from heaven whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are a people delivered from sin, from death, and from the wrath of God to come. So we see this, this triad marking these believers. There's another mark here that we see, and that is of imitation. Unique concept. Paul says in verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So the evidence that Paul witnessed and confirmed later by Timothy is that these believers came to imitate not only the same beliefs, but the same kind of lifestyle and practice evidenced in them. So we see something important here about Paul. He desired so much that these Thessalonians would not only believe in the gospel, but be transformed in life. If you turn to chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. And what an effect it had. Paul imitating Christ, the Thessalonians imitating Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and then the Thessalonians, he says, becoming really a pattern, an example for all the believers throughout Macedonia. That notion of, of imitation is a very powerful one. We remember Paul's words in, in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world or to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And uh, we, we live not only in a conformist culture, but we live in a celebrity culture uh, here in our country in many ways, where it is the celebrity, it's the wealthy, it's the healthy, uh, it's the famous who are held out as the model to imitate. And, and I think that worldly pattern is essentially saying, if you could just have this, this house or this job or this income or this spouse or this, you name it, you will know satisfaction. Years ago in uh, 2007, the uh, famous football star Tom Brady, uh, the New England Patriots quarterback, then at the time a three-time Super Bowl champion, had a contract for 
millions of dollars. He was featured on CBS, 60 Minutes. And in that interview, he said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's about. But I reached my goal, my dream, my life, and yet I think there's got to be more than this. This can't be all that there is. And, you know, perhaps in our uh, honest Quiet moments, we recognize that pull or the temptation to conform or to imitate to a pattern in the world that we know does not give ultimate life to us. Paul, following in the steps of Christ, is offering a different pattern, a different pattern to to imitate. He says in verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. When they heard the gospel, they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens to every believer who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. They recognize sin. They see the grace of God in Christ. They're convicted to the heart. But the Spirit does not end his work there. The conviction does not end. Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. What were they imitating? It seems to me a very cross-centered life. In Acts 17, the mob that was stirred up said, quote, these men are acting against Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, Jesus. So their lives were a witness to person and the work and the kingship of Jesus Christ, and they were willing to suffer for it. And that reflects the very person of Christ himself, whose message and ministry led him to the cross uh, that we might have life. That's the imitation. And then finally, we see these believers marked by lives of repentance and faith there in verse Uh, 9 and 10. Paul says of them how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So Paul captures in these words the very essence of what repentance is. This is the ministry that Jesus, the message Jesus began preaching there in in Mark chapter 1. A message of repentance and faith uh, in the gospel. Repentance is a turning from idols and sin to the living God. Turning from allegiance to idolatry to an allegiance to Christ. Our catechism defines repentance as a grace of God whereby a sinner has a sense of his own sin. Knowing God's grace in Christ, he then turns from his sin to God with a new obedience. Uh, the, The city of Thessalonica was on a harbor, and if you were standing in that harbor, looking out across the water to the southwest, uh, you would see a large mountain uh, appearing, rising out of the water. And that mountain was Mount Olympus, the well-known mountain in Greek mythology, the home of the gods. So these people lived in the shadow of the gods. They lived in the shadow of idolatry. And though you and I are separated by 2,000 years, far removed from their culture, we too live in the shadow 
of idolatry. False gods. Idolatry. It's not only sin, it's fundamentally trusting in and building one's life on anything, even a good thing, rather than on the Lord Jesus himself. Even good gifts from God, family and marriage, work, education, service, can become an idol. It's when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing in our lives. Begins taking the very place of life in God himself. Then we begin to build our lives on sinking sand rather than on the firm, solid ground of life in God. But it's by the grace of God that he sets his people on solid ground. It is by his grace Verse 4, for we know, brothers, brothers and sisters, for we know, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for your grace that you impart in our lives. That from the abundance of your grace and your love that you have called and chosen us as your people. We thank you that we rest not upon ourselves, but upon your spirit at work within us. Lord, we pray with thanks for the work that you have accomplished and the work you continue to do in and through your people. We pray that you continue to shape us, Lord, in the likeness of Christ, in willingness to endure, to suffer for your holy purposes Lord, we pray that you would give us that labor of love relationally, that uh, work of faith, that we would see fruit in our lives. And Lord, that we would set our hope upon uh, uh, your uh, glorious purposes and your redemptive history. Help us to see and to live our lives in light of that grand uh, story of salvation. And uh, Lord, we continue to worship you as your people. We pray this all with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.